Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Last Sunday, and again this Sunday, we're taking a short break from our study in 1 Corinthians to look at a couple of dimensions of God's character that um, I feel like are often misunderstood. And because they're frequently misunderstood, they're misapplied in certain circumstances. And so last week we spent some time considering the debt of love that we owe to every human being, uh, whether that be family, friends, or even our foes, Scripture says in Romans 13, verse 8, and that was sort of our introductory text, owe no man anything except this, love one another. That is the, um, the debt we will never finish paying off in this life. And, and we use this, um, our text for the morning, Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, where Paul commands us to walk in love, that that is to be the cadence of our lives, and we're to do so just as God in Christ has loved us. And so we extrapolated some uh, principles from the text that pointed out that Christ-like love is um, many things, but uh, two specifically stood out to us in the text. Christ-like love is gracious, and Christ-like love gives itself sacrificially for the benefit of others. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's more than that, but it's not, certainly not less than that. Um, so Christ-like love, we said, is very hands-on. It's very practical. It's, it's, um, we said it works itself out in the context of real relationships and the practical day-to-day circumstances of our lives. Um, imitating God, as he tells us to do in Ephesians 5, verse 1, by walking in love isn't simply having warm and fuzzy feelings for certain people. It's, uh, it's a spirit-wrought disposition that seeks to do and demonstrates itself at all times by doing good to all men. That's something that uh, we all need to be reminded of constantly because that is not our natural inclination. But there's another dimension of God's character that's frequently misunderstood, and that is his sovereignty, his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is defined this way. It's his absolute right and power to do whatever he wills. In other words, it's his, complete, it's his complete authority over all things. When we say God is sovereign, we mean that God is absolutely free in and of himself and that nothing outside of himself constricts or restrains him from doing or not doing whatsoever he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that exact thing. Our God is in the heavens And he does whatever he pleases. And there are many other texts we could cite that reiterate that point. Of course, God's right and his power to do whatever he chooses, that is not spilling out into the universe sort of willy-nilly. It's not just happenstance. God is all-wise, and his sovereignty works itself out in accordance with that wisdom in his eternal plan. And it moves toward his eternal purposes. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, really, I don't feel like that's a text that really grabs hold of that. Uh, God says this, Isaiah is speaking, but he's speaking for God. God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God's purposeful sovereignty 
has a fancy theological name. We call it God's providence. God's providence is the term that we would use for that. God doesn't just plan things and decree them as in, in, in the sense of you know, creating a blueprint. He actively works to ensure that they happen exactly as he has decreed. So God's providence isn't simply his seeing forward, meaning that he's, so, so that's what provide, or in Latin provide, kind of looking towards something. It's not what it means. It captures the idea of seeing to something, seeing to an end or purpose. In, in English, we would say something to the effect, uh, it's a little archaic, but if you're talking about a task that's in front of you, you might say, I'll see to it. Right? It's the idea. Same idea. There's a task to be accomplished. If you say, I'll see to it, that's a way of you saying, I will take action to make it happen. That's how we should think about God's providence. God sees to it that everything happens according to his divine plan and according to his divine purposes. And he doesn't just do this in sort of like a general big picture sense. He does it in everything. When he controls molecules and men, he controls the moon and massive stars. Isaiah 46, again, verse 11, just one verse forward, God says, I call a bird of a prey, I call a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Something as insignificant as a bird or a random person from far off land. God is in control of all of that. Job 38, verses 31 to 33, God says to Job rhetorically, can you, Job, as a man, bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the constellation in its season and guide the bear, meaning like the constellation with her satellites do you know the ordinances of the heavens or do you fix the rule over the earth the the point that god is making to job is that you don't control anything i control everything including cosmic the cosmic bodies that move in the heavens so god controls it all molecules and men the moon the stars it's all under his Sovereign control. Paul defines God's providence in Ephesians 1 verse 11 as God working all things after the counsel of his will. All things, and we believe that. J. Vernon McGee, the famous um, preacher, used to say that God's providence means the hand of God is in the glove of all human events. And I like that word picture. I think that's a helpful way to think about it. So his providence, God's providence, is his seeing to everything. And that's a doctrine that we treasure. That's a doctrine that we cling to uh, in the midst of the chaos of our world, especially over the last year plus. The way you and I as believers, those who understand God's providential control of all things, the way we think about something as dislocating as a pandemic is going to look very different than the way a lost and dying world would think about that. Because we understand that God is... Sovereign. We have a high view of God's purposeful sovereignty, his providence, because the word of God has a high view of his purposeful sovereignty. We're not, we're not outstripping the word of God, and that's a good thing. That's an excellent thing. I would even go so far as to say that's a, that's a necessary thing for 
us as believers to hold fast to in the midst of all of the hardships that we experience in life. I mentioned in Equipping Hour, I don't want to live in a world where God is not in control. I wouldn't want to live in a world where God's finding out about evil things when I'm finding out about them. I want to know that he is in control, and Scripture affirms that he does know that, and that he works all those things together for good for those who love him. And so he's not surprised by any of it. And, uh, and so we, we understand that. Now, our personal responsibility, which is what we talked about last time, to walk in love toward all men, we said that's very hands-on, that's very active. Um, it's, it's very horizontally oriented as a whole. But when we talk about God's sovereignty and resting and trusting in his providential direction of all things, uh, that is very hands-off in some ways. It's very much out of our control. It's passive, and it's very... The, the doctrine itself is, is very vertically oriented by nature. So when you look at those two, at first glance, these, these two realities of man's responsibility, particularly, as we said, in an in a, in a overarching sense, to love others, and then at the same time, God's sovereignty, you look at those two and you say, wow, those almost seem like they're in diametric opposition to one another, that they're almost like they're in conflict, but... But the reality is that they're not, and we understand that. It might seem as if there's a conflict with one another, but Scripture plainly teaches both truths. And so because Scripture makes those truths plain, we affirm them, even if we don't fully understand exactly how they all fit together. But the problem is that when we come into these tensions that we see in Scripture, and there are others besides man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, when we come into these tensions, uh, our natural inclination is to, is to kind of gravitate toward one or the other over time. Uh, at first, we may hold them kind of where we need to hold them, but over time, the, the struggle of the tension, we, we, we are just sort of, we kind of drift into one or closer to the other. We don't usually, at least that's been my experience, and as I study church history, and you see the, the, the theological kind of back and forth that's happened in certain doctrines over, over the centuries. As Christians, we don't do a great job of keeping ourselves balanced and understanding and applying the various tensions that we see in the scriptures. When it comes to our responsibility to love others, planning and doing good to all men, and God's providential direction of all things in which he is planning and doing good to all men, we can make one of two errors basically one or two mistakes. We can make the mistake of living what we'll call by power. And secondly, we can make the mistake of living by presumption. We can make the mistake of living by power or by presumption. When I say the making the mistake of living by power, I mean that we think and act as though human responsibility is everything. As if it matters more than anything else. There is a functional absence of God's sovereignty. Even though we might acknowledge that on paper, we have this overwhelming emphasis on secondary causes. And that tempts us, when we live by power, to fear, to anxiety, um, a sense uh, of trying to control, perfectionism, and when things don't go as we plan, anger. And that's because we think everything is up to us. 
On the other hand, we can make the error of living by presumption. We let go of our lives as though God's sovereignty is everything. And here, there's a functional absence of man's responsibility. Even though, again, we might acknowledge, oh yeah, no, we, we know that man's responsible. There's an overwhelming emphasis on God's sovereignty that tempts us to indifference, passivity, what you could call fatalism or a hard determinism, and at times laziness. And that's because we think, well, you know, it's all up to God. Everything's in God's hands. So scripture, though rightly interpreted and applied, guards us against both extremes. Both of those extremes are are protected if we study the scriptures and apply them. We aren't to live by power as if it all depends on us, and we are not to live by presumption as if it all depends on God. So I want to look at some select passages that expose, first, the futility of living by power, second, the foolishness of living by presumption, and then I want to end by proposing a third and better way and make some specific application. First, Error number one, living by power. I want to look at an example of the futility of living by power. So turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 13, well, really 14 to 21-ish. This is in uh, Jesus' teaching, and... um, He uses a parable, as he does throughout his teaching. Uh, This is just a story to illustrate a spiritual principle. He uses this parable of the futility of living by power, living as if everything depended upon us. And as he was preaching and teaching, there was a guy in the crowd who yelled out to him, and uh, he called out to Jesus, asking for Jesus to arbitrate this um, family dispute with his brother over his inheritance. And Jesus uh, is not interested in doing anything to, of the sort, and he calls the man out for being far too horizontally minded right at the beginning there in verse 15. He says, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And it says, And then he tells a parable, verse 16, that powerfully illustrates why it is futile to live as if everything depended on you or me. He says, In verse 16, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So this hypothetical man, this is just, there's no particular person in view here. Jesus just makes up a, a, a common everyday scenario. This man in the story assumes that all of his planning and all of his actions and all of his efforts were going to bear fruit in exactly the way he envisioned on the timetable that he expected. He says, there, you know, I'm going to work, I'm going to... Uh, I have all these crops, I'm going to tear down my barns, I'm going to build bigger ones, I'm going to store, down all, store all my grain and my goods. You have goods for many years to come, I'm going to, do, I'm going to take my ease and enjoy life. So you see within his heart this arrogance, this, this pride within his spirit. In all of his consultations and plans, God is not consulted once. 
God has no place in any of his consultations. He says, he reasoned within himself. Or he says, I will say to my soul. So this is a man having a dialogue with himself. He is reasoning within himself. He is thinking within himself. God is nowhere to be found. This guy who thinks he has the power to shape the future thinks that it all depends on his effort and planning. And he fails to recognize God's providence, God's sovereignty over all things. But God's sovereignty breaks through in a powerful way in verse 20. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So the days of his life, we know, and the text affirms, are in God's sovereign control, not his. And in verse 20, God says, your day has come. Your day has come. Your soul will be required of you. You will die tonight. And because God's purpose always comes to pass, the man died that very night, and just like that, the bottom drops off of all of his plans. And Jesus sums it up in verse, all in verse 21. He sums it all up in verse 21. He says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's a proverb. It's a, it's a truism. This man should have known better. This man should have acknowledged God's providential direction in all his um, planning and doing. And he should have lived accordingly. And as a result, he paid a costly penalty. It's the same with us. It is the same with us when we choose to live by our own power, when we live as if it all depends on us. We should not be surprised if that is our orientation of our heart, if we're drifting into that orbit, that God would take our plans and go a completely different direction. I mean, Jesus says it in a couple chapters over in Luke 14. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humble. And that's the reality of it. God has a way of humbling us. He has a way of helping us understand that he and he alone is blessed and only sovereign, as Paul says. He is it. So the first error we can make is living by power. Secondly, look an exam- look, I want to look at an example of, living, um, of the foolishness of living by presumption. So turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, looking at verses 6 to 15. Paul, in this text, is warning the Thessalonian church not to tolerate those who live irresponsibly. He's warning them against tolerating and allowing those who live irresponsibly to carry on in the fellowship of the church. They are um, idle or unruly. Your translation might say undisciplined. They're living contrary to apostolic teaching that they had received. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Now, Paul says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So Paul says, We were there. We taught you what God expects. And we hear that there are some among you who are not living that way, and that's a problem. What, what exactly was the issue? If you look at verse 11, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat either. He says, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like 
busybodies. There were, the issue is this. There were people in the Thessalonian church who were using God's word and the scriptures teaching about the, the imminent sort of any moment return of the Lord uh, and the arrival of the day of the Lord, which is really the, the key theme that Paul's addressing here and why he's writing to them. Uh, they were using God's teaching about the imminent, the any moment arrival of the day of the Lord as a pretext for selfishness and for laziness. They were refusing to work and earn a wage to provide for their needs. The word that he uses throughout this section that's translated unruly or undisciplined or maybe idle, depends on your English translation, it's a fascinating term. It pictures a soldier who is not at his post. That, that's really the root of it. It pictures a person who doesn't conform to established law or custom. It's someone who violates the prescribed or recognized order and acts with self-interest and not for the common good. Someone who acts in defiance of, in a noun form, it would be someone who acts in defiance of good order. So it has the idea of living recklessly, living irresponsibly. So instead of taking responsible action to work quietly and provide for their needs, they were acting presumptuously. And not only were they living presumptuously, but they were getting in everyone else's business about it. That's what he says in verse 11. He says, they are acting like busybodies. So you have these people who were not working, and they were not working and encouraging perhaps others to do the same. Encouraging others to, to forsake their responsibility, their God-given responsibility. They just assumed these individuals just assumed that God's people would be there to help them when they had a need. They assumed that God would provide for them through the generosity of others, but really they're just sponging off of the brethren, the other believers, and they were using the word of God to justify it. They were meddling in the lives of other Christians Perhaps encouraging them to do the same, saying things probably along the lines of, you know, you need to be spiritual like us. We trust God. Um, we're, we're focused and looking with expectation to God's Christ's return. You know, we're not going to be out there like those pagans breaking our backs in the workforce. Christ is coming back. You know, you need to be holy and spiritual like us. And Paul has a, a word for believers who live presumptuously. He has a word for them. He says, if you live irresponsibly, if you sponge off the kindness and generosity of others, if you foolishly elevate God's sovereignty to such a degree that you're somehow freed of your personal responsibility to provide for your needs or for those around you, he says, you shouldn't be proud. You shouldn't boast. You should be ashamed. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, Take note of that person, do not associate with him, so that he will be put to open shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Paul says, someone who uses the word of God as a pretext for not taking personal responsibility for their lives shouldn't be enabled, they should not be encouraged, they should not be coddled, they should be confronted and they should be put to shame. They should be warned, admonished, 
That's a strong warning. But they're not to be admonished as if they were an enemy. They're not treated as if they're unbelievers at this point, but as a brother or sister in Christ. It's a tempered admonishment, but it is an admonishment nonetheless. And so Paul has no use for living irresponsibly, presumptuously, meaning that you are presuming on something that is simply not, that you have no business trusting in. And we can do the same thing. Just as we can fall into the trap of living by power, thinking it all depends on us, we can fall into the trap of living by presumption, thinking that it all depends on God. And what Paul points out here is that's not faith, that's foolishness. That's not trusting God. That's actually putting God to the test. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to live by power, and we don't want to live by presumption. So those are the wrong ways to go about life. Then how should we live? Because that's what's most important. How should we live if we want to avoid this error of acting as if everything depended on us or living on the flip side, as if everything depends on God. How do we avoid these extremes of power and presumption? Well, Scripture teaches us, as God's people, to live, thirdly, by prudence. By prudence. Paul and others had shown the Thessalonian church, by the example of their own lives, how to live prudently. If you look back at 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 7, Paul says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined or irresponsible manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Paul says, Listen, when we were with you, we did not live irresponsibly. We took responsibility for things. We were not idle among you. Paul says, I conformed my life and others who were with me, conformed our lives to the society's propriety. We, he said, I didn't act as though I was exempt from or entitled to anything different than anybody else. He wasn't selfishly taking from others for his own personal benefit, presuming that God would somehow provide for what he Needed. That's why he says in verse 8, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. He says, we didn't eat anyone's food free of charge. We bought the food we needed. We worked to earn the money. What did he do instead? We're into verse 8. With labor and hardship, we kept working night and day. We kept working night and day. In other words, Paul says he and other apostles and leaders who were with him, they took practical, consistent, responsible action to provide for what they needed. You might remember uh, when we introduced 1 Corinthians, um, Paul, uh, the scripture tells us in Acts 18 that Paul was a tent maker by, train, uh, by trade. And that when he came to Corinth, he linked up with and met Aquila. And he was a tent maker as well. Remember Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul and Aquila were living in Corinth and they were working as tent makers to earn a day's wage. And um, so 
He says, this is what we did. So you might say to yourself, well, Paul didn't have to do that. I mean, technically speaking, they were free to, to forego the, the grind, if you will, of getting up and going to work every day. I mean, he didn't have to do that. Scripture, in fact, Paul teaches multiple places, 1, Corinthians 5, or 1 Timothy 5, 1 Corinthians 9. Scripture tells the church, don't muzzle the ox. Um, and Paul specifically applies that to ministers of the gospel. And, of course, Paul says he's not concerned about ox. His point is it's making a principle that you know, the one who, who works should, should, should receive some benefit for their work. In, in more than one letter, Paul taught that those who sow spiritual things among the flock, they have a God-given right to receive material benefits from those whom they serve and, and to earn their living through the gospel. I mean, that is their right. So what gives? Why would Paul work? Why would Paul not make full use of his rights and his privileges as an apostle? The end of verse 8 tells us why. So that we would not be a burden to any of you. In other words, Paul was concerned that his asserting his rights might be a burden and hinder the work of the gospel. He didn't run around to every church he visited thumping his chest about his rights. He didn't defiantly refuse to work whilst continuing to expect everyone else to take care of him. He did not tell other elders and shepherds to stop being fearful and to trust God. He didn't shame them for not having adequate faith. He willingly set aside his freedom and his rights, as he says in verse 9, to show ourselves as a model for you. To set an example for others. He wanted to demonstrate for them what trusting in God's providence and living responsibly looked like in hopes that they and other believers would imitate him, that they would copy the pattern of his life. He says, not that we have the, he says, not, be, not because we, he says, we didn't do this, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. They wanted, Paul wanted, and the other apostles wanted the leaders and the lay people in the church to follow his pattern of life. What pattern are we talking about? The pattern that doesn't turn one's personal freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love leverages that as an opportunity to serve others. Galatians 5 verse 13. That he wanted them to emulate his pattern of life that, does not, that did not presumptuously elevate God's sovereignty to such a degree that he expected others to meet his needs. Paul's actions then illustrate for us what a mature Christian mindset should be in that it, a Christian should be generous, humble, self-sacrificial, and willing to work hard for the benefit of others. 
He shows us then what it looks like to rely upon God's provision. Because, I mean, in the end of the day, he was trusting that God was going to meet his every need. So he shows them what it looks like to rely upon God's provision, his sovereignty, while at the same time expecting, ex- accepting excuse me, personal responsibility for his well-being and the well-being of those around him. In other words, he shows us what it means to live by a wise and balanced prudence. He planned, he worked, he took responsible action, and he trusted God was in control of everything. It's not either or, it's both and. Scripture commends again and again, particularly in the wisdom literature, living by prudence. Living by prudence. This is the heartbeat of living by prudence. It's this. You plan and you do and you labor and you simultaneously acknowledge God in all of your planning and doing and actions. It's both. James 4, verse 15. Jesus, uh, Paul, uh, James says to us, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or do that. In other words, it's not that we don't plan or it's not that we don't take action. It's that we acknowledge God in all of our planning, in all of our doing. Prudence, then, the third, kind of the third way, stands in stark contrast to the anxious self-determination of power and the arrogant passivity of presumption. It keeps us from living in one of those two extremes. So Paul could say that God has chosen every believer before the foundation of the world. I mean, that's a strong sovereignty passage, Ephesians 1. And at the same time, he can say in Romans 10, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in in him whom they haven't heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Paul can say, as he does in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. In other words, God's providential sovereign power in my life is everything. And then in the same breath, he says, But I labored more than all of them. Paul can say, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, as he does in Philippians 4. And at the same time, he can say, as he does to the Thessalonians here in verse um, 11, or verse 12, to work in a quiet fashion and eat your own bread. So we make our plans. Heavenly wisdom then necessitates an understanding that while we make our plans, God is at work in and through our plans and has to change our plans any time or any way he wants. So Proverbs 16, verse 9 is probably a familiar passage. The mind of man plans his ways, but we know ultimately the Lord directs his steps. This is what living by prudence is all about. So this unwavering view of God's sovereignty that we have seen, and more specifically in his providence throughout the pandemic among God's people, 
I will confess to you, has been surprising. I'm surprised to see the way God's people have clung to God's sovereignty in the midst of the chaos of the last year and a half. It's tremendously encouraging in one sense because, you know, you put your money where your mouth is. So that's been really good. It does concern me, though, that it has led some to presume upon God's sovereignty. Um, They would call it trust, but I think the scriptures would define it as putting God to the test. They have embraced uh, fatalism that that they would call faith, but I think scripture calls it foolishness. God is sovereign. Yes, God providentially works all things out according to the counsel of his will. But at the same time, you and I are genuinely responsible to act to live prudently. God upholds all things by his right hand, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, but at the same time, what you and I do with our hands really matters. It makes a difference. We are called by God to trust, and we are called by God to act. The scripture affirms both the absolute sovereignty of God and man's personal responsibility. Give me an example. I set my alarm this morning to get out of bed on time, especially since we set up, start a little bit earlier than we have. Uh, Many of you may have done the same thing. I did not assume God would wake me up supernaturally at 6.30 this morning. Um, I made a plan, and then I took actions that I believe would reasonably ensure the success of that plan. That act of setting my alarm didn't betray a lack of trust in God's providence. I pillowed my head last night at 11.30, trusting that God would watch over me while I slept. I trusted that he would keep my cell phone operational. And I trusted that my wife would eventually wake me up once the alarm had gone off enough times. Right? It was not a lack of faith or trust in God's providence that made me set an alarm. It was a wise embrace of secondary means. It was living by prudence. Scripture says God will provide us with all the necessities of life, food to eat, cover for our bodies, clothing, shelter from the elements. But you don't wait around. You and I don't wait around for food to just show up at the doorstep. And we don't wait for clothes to be gifted to you spontaneously or for some total stranger to extend a random invitation for you to live in their home, in their rental property. What do you do? You get up, you go to work each day to earn a paycheck, and that paycheck is the means by which God allows you to go to the store and buy food and allows you to purchase the clothes you need for the season and to pay your rent or pay your mortgage on your home where you're going to live. Uh, It's not a lack of trust in God's providence that makes you go to work or makes you go to the grocery store or go to the mall to buy clothes. Does anybody even go to the mall anymore to buy clothes? I don't know. It's a wise embrace of secondary means. It's living by prudence. I take a vacation. I don't just expect God to magically transport me to my destination, but rather I buy a plane ticket, I drive to the airport, I get on an airplane, and I trust that God is going to 
get me to my destination. I, I trust that the pilot knows what he's doing. I trust that the maintenance technicians double-checked there's fuel in the plane. I, I trust God and all that. But my, my taking a plane, purchasing a ticket, or doing those things doesn't betray a lack of trust in God's sovereignty or his power. See, the scripture makes no apology for God's providential care of all things. And at the same time, he does not shy away from our personal responsibility to plan and to take action. It's not one or the other. It's both. God calls us to live prudently. God's decree of his eternal plan and purpose in the past is not the fulfillment of the plan. No, any more than a blueprint is the fulfillment of the building being constructed. It's the plan. It's the decree. But foundations have to be poured. Walls have to be built. Electrical has to be roughed in. Roofs have to be constructed to build a building. God, more often than not, works out his providence not immediately through direct supernatural action, miraculous healing, parting the sea, making an axe head float, turning water into wine. Rather, he works out his providence and mediates that by and through the responsible actions of us as creatures. Even in the Bible, God's providences overwhelmingly work themselves out through the normal, everyday agency of his creatures and in the natural order. God commands us to do good, to bless those who persecute us, to set our minds on earthly, excuse me, on heavenly things, things above, to pray at all times, to be hospitable to strangers, to contribute to the needs of the saints, to make disciples, to care for widows and orphans, to keep ourselves, as Jude says, in the love of God. All things that show our thoughts and our words and our deeds are a normal and necessary part of how God works everything out in our lives for his eternal purposes. Where am I going with this? It concerns me when I hear some Christians using God's word to justify living by power and by presumption in the face of disease, suffering, and death. For better part of 18 months, many Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christians have wrongly applied the doctrine of God's sovereignty as a pretext for not taking responsible actions to limit the spread of a contagious disease that has sickened millions and claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. They claim to trust that God is sovereign or that God's going to protect them or that God's given them an immune system to fight off the virus and that because God is directing all things that they don't need to nor should they have to take any specific actions to reduce the spread or the impact of the disease. And I am arguing from Scripture that that betrays a lack of understanding of personal responsibility and God's sovereignty. It is a failure to live prudently. It is a failure to live prudently. Some are living by power. They think that they can control the situation exactly as they foresee it. Many more, I fear, are living by presumption. They are living by presumption. 
They are presuming that God is going to work out his providential protection or his healing apart from our responsible actions. Will God protect us? Absolutely. I believe that. Do we trust that God has appointed our days, that not a moment of our lives will escape us, we won't live a moment longer or less than God purposes? I believe that 100%. Will God protect us and preserve us apart from you and I taking courageous, responsible action? Probably not. Probably not. As Christians, we are not medical non-interventionists. Do you understand that? We're not Christian scientists. We are not Christian scientists. Christian scientists teach that all physical illness is an illusion, and therefore they absolutely reject the use of medical intervention to to bring about healing and restoration. But as Christians... Evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, we are not medical non-interventionists. There's nothing inherent to our faith that makes that the case. God has given our finite minds a tremendous understanding of the natural world, particularly the hard sciences, biology, physics, chemistry, mathematics, and the application of those realities in the discipline of modern medicine. Modern medicine and the knowledge it affords us to lessen human suffering and improve the quality of life, I want to make this clear, is by no means absolute or infallible. Okay? We don't worship science with a capital S. It's not what we're talking about. Science is rightly applied, is compatible with the Christian faith. It reflects God's faithfulness of the natural order, his omnipresence in natural law, his his omnipotence and his power to control all things. There's nothing incompatible with science in our faith. So it gives us a degree of knowledge and understanding of the natural order in our physical bodies, and and that gives us a degree of certainty, not absolute certainty. It's not on par with Scripture. It's not divine And it's constantly being refined. But it gives us a degree of certainty such that clinging to a prejudiced, blanket distrust discredits our discernment as believers. Are we to have an informed, specific skepticism at times? Absolutely. Scripture says the naive believe everything. So we we can't go through life naive. But when the evidence piles up showing that a specific medical intervention, including vaccination, can be used safely and effectively to reduce severe disease, death, and human suffering, when we see that evidence piling up and we continue to be swayed by internet rumors and anecdotal evidence and conspiratorial thinking, it undermines our credibility, personally. And I'm concerned I'm concerned that that is happening. James says heavenly wisdom is reasonable. In other words, it's able to be entreated or reasoned with. 
That's how we should be as Christians. Lastly, I want to speak to the growing chorus of Christian voices, not really in this church, but outside of this church, whom people listen to, who are championing personal freedom and religious liberty as grounds for not doing this or that. As Christians, we are called to take courageous risk for the benefit of other people. That's the life we live. Paul says in Acts 20, verse 24, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. He says, my life is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. So that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of grace. Paul says, I took courageous risk for the gospel. I took courageous risk for the benefit of other people. And he gives so many examples in his life and ministry a laundry list of things that he endured. He says, my life is whatever. He took courageous risk for others. Epaphroditus, we studied him in Philippians 2, verse 30. It says, he came close to death for the work of Christ, to serve Paul. Whatever illness he had, it was serious. He thought he might die. Paul thought he might die. He was afraid he wouldn't get back to fill up what they could not do in, his, in their absence, the Philippians, while Paul was in prison. Right? As human beings created in the image of God, taking care of yourself is an independent good. But taking care of yourself so that you now have the strength to take care of others and the availability to care for others, that's an even nobler good. And we should not run away from that. As believers. My point is that our freedom in Christ should not be viewed through the lens first and instinctively toward doing what you want, but should be, as Paul said by his example, an opportunity through love to serve others. Paul chose to set aside his liberty in Christ to do what served others. He did it in Thessalonica by not taking anyone's bread without paying for it. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, even though he was free in Christ. He said, I didn't walk around flaunting my liberty or freedom from the law. He says, to be a Jew... To those without law, I acted as those without law, though not being without a law, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. To the weak, he says, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. He says, I preach the gospel, not under compulsion, but willingly. He says, I made myself, verse 19, a slave to all, so that I may win the more. In other words, that's the mindset we should have. That we would choose to set aside our liberty to do what blesses and serves others. Listen, there is no way forward in this pandemic that is 
risk-free. None. If we do nothing, there's risk. If we do something, there's risk. But it is prudent. I think from Scripture you can argue it is prudent to take responsible risk for the common good rather than irresponsible risk on the basis of selfish gain. And so I am appealing to you once again on the basis of love, as Paul did when he wrote to Philemon, to live by prudence. Live by prudence. Set an example like Paul did so that others, both in the church and outside of the church, might follow in your footsteps. Every sacrifice, every courageous risk, every practical action that we take, no matter how insignificant, done for Christ's glory and the benefit of others, especially other Christians, Paul says, I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 25, is not lost and will be rewarded. People say, when do we see you as this hungry? When do we see you without anything to drink? When do we see you as a stranger and not invite you in? They said, when do we see you naked or sick or in prison? He says, to the extent you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. The point is that as we take sacrifices for the common good, courageously trusting God and living prudently, we give ourselves an opportunity to serve others faithfully, to strengthen others. And like I said earlier, it's a good thing to protect yourself as it's an even greater thing to protect those around you. It is not above what is written for me to appeal to your conscience and to your sense of discernment. It is, a, it is beyond what is written to say that believer must do X or Y. But it is not above, and go, it does not go beyond what is written for me to appeal that you think about it. I don't want to see anybody sick and incapacitated. I don't want to see anybody suffering that doesn't need to suffer. I have a burden for your well-being, spiritually and physically. So I would encourage you to think, think about the principles that we've outlined in these sermons and to take that to consideration as you think about how you move forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it guides us into all the truth and wisdom. We pray that you would help us to think rightly about these things, to think about our freedom in Christ, not as an opportunity for selfish gain or selfish ends, but to serve and love others, to put others first. We pray, Father, that you would protect our church and guide us through these days the, the, as we move into the fall. Um, we're not through this trial, and it will probably be harder before it gets better, but we trust you. We know that you're sovereign over all of it. As we take responsible action, as we love others, as we lean and acknowledge you in all of our planning and doing, that you will guide us through, and whatever the outcome is, it is good and right 
and blessed. Lord, help us, we pray, to live for you each and every day. In Christ's name, amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.